0: Wait, so his lawyers are going to be like, okay, here's some things that you should not say yeah. on the campaign trail. Yeah.
1: And then he'll definitely say those things. And so what the court is going to do with him, I think, is the open question.
0: Hello and welcome to the Five Thirty Eight Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Former President Donald Trump was arraigned in federal court in Miami today Tuesday, on 37 counts related to his handling of classified documents. He pleaded not guilty to all 37 counts, setting in motion a trial that could run in tandem with his campaign for president. Since we last talked, we got some initial polling on how Americans are viewing this indictment. So far, a plurality of Americans, according to an ABC News poll, say that Donald Trump should have been charged in this case. It was 48%. At the same time, 47% of Americans also say that they see these charges as politically motivated. In that poll as well, though, we saw an increase in the percentage of Americans who said these charges were serious, up from 52% in April to 61% now. We're going to have to wait and see exactly how this shakes out on the campaign trail. So far, we haven't gotten a lot of Republican primary polling since this indictment came out in general. Donald Trump still leading with about 54% to Ron DeSantis' 20%, and then everyone else in the low to mid single digits. But today, we're going to talk about what we can expect from this trial, considering that it's likely to play out, at least in part, while former President Trump is running for president. So here with me to discuss today in studio is Kate Shaw. Welcome back to the podcast, Kate. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Kate Shaw is a law professor at the Cardozo School of Law. She's an ABC News legal contributor and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. So you've been doing a lot of talking today already. Uh, are you ready for some <laughs> uh, more talking?
1: I'm, I'm, I'm never talked out. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm happy to go. We
0: love to hear that. Here. OK, so what did we learn today that was new?
1: So look people who sat down and read the indictment that was available on Friday had a sense of the basic narrative that the special counsel's office is offering. So, you know, as a technical matter, there are 37 counts in this indictment. Most of them are for willfully retaining national defense information, most of it classified. Mm -hmm. This is nuclear secrets, military and intelligence secrets, planning, potential attacks. I mean, the most sensitive information the U.S. government has. So he sort of knew all that. um, And we also knew the basic kind of arc of the narrative which is that you know trump after you know failing to stay in office despite you know laboring mightily to do that eventually leaves washington right leaves the white house on january 20th right 2021 and takes with him a lot of boxes and some of those boxes are you know personal papers and in those boxes are a lot of classified documents and so within the year sort of that follows the National Archives, which under the law maintain presidential records, starts sort of slowly and then kind of more urgently trying to get Trump to turn these documents back Mm -hmm. over. So there is some voluntary relinquishment of some documents, um, but not all of them by any stretch. And sort of, you know, proceedings escalate so that you have first a subpoena. Some documents are turned over, but it's pretty clear it's not all of them. After that, The FBI gets surveillance footage that shows boxes being moved and hidden even after the issuance of the subpoena. Then there's a search warrant and many more documents are turned over. So we sort of see this kind of escalating effort by federal authorities, first by asking nicely, then by asking more pointedly, and then using sort of increasingly coercive measures under the law to get these documents. But you sort of have this sense that, you know, these officials didn't go in like, cavalierly to charge a former president Mm -hmm. with 37 federal counts. They really did try just to get these documents back. And Trump didn't cooperate, obstructed in a number of ways. And also along the way, while hanging on to these documents, showed them to individuals who had no business, you know, seeing our country's most sensitive secrets. So anyway, so we kind of knew all of that. But we had, you know, I think focusing on it a little bit as Trump is in court, um, you know, kind of clarified a little bit both the allegations and the stakes. Um, we didn't get a sense yet of the kind of you know, demeanor of the district court judge who's going to preside over this trial. So this is Aileen Cannon. She's a Trump appointee. She issued some very favorable rulings um, in an earlier stage of related proceedings when Trump actually filed a, a civil lawsuit trying, you know, objecting to the FBI's execution of a search Essentially, warrant. Essentially,
0: once they had gotten the document, yeah. her ruling stated that they needed to be reviewed before they could be turned over to the federal government, which is what Trump wanted. But that was overturned by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is itself a rather conservative court. Oh,
1: very. Yeah. And
0: so it was sort of a lucky break that Trump got Eileen Cannon, but she wasn't in court today.
1: Correct. It was a magistrate judge, and that's typical for early stage proceedings. Um, So one thing that's gonna be really important in this case is the kind of she's gonna set both the tenor, I think, of the proceedings and also the tempo of the proceedings. And so we just don't know yet what her disposition is going to be. Um so we're gonna to have to sort of await another appearance, another she'll probably be at the next court date. We don't even know yet when that will be. We also learned that Trump is really struggling to build a legal team that will help him defend against these very serious federal charges. So he had two lawyers with him in court today. It's been widely reported that he is actively interviewing additional attorneys, the two attorneys who were in there in court today. Todd Blanche sort of seemed to take the lead role, is also seems to be in the lead role in the case in Manhattan, right? That was the arraignment that was in April over the kind of hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. And these are just really complicated, big, big cases with enormously high stakes. And you need a lot of lawyers to properly run these cases. And so, you know, it's not clear to me when and how Trump is and if Trump is going to be able to assemble the team. But that was something really striking today. Two lawyers in court. We think there are going to be more, but we don't yet know sort of who, how or, or, or when.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing that I was most interested in finding out today, I don't think we got a great sense of, which is timeline. Because as much has been made of the fact that a former president is being federally charged, it's in some ways more important that a leading candidate for president is being charged. Mm -hmm. Also something historic, but that's maybe been a little bit less of the focus Mm -hmm. because he's going to be running for president in tandem with this trial. Mm -hmm. And it's a really big question of whether or not these proceedings will wrap up by the time the November election comes, he may not win the Republican primary. Right. We'll have to see. Yeah. But he's pulling out about percent Certainly 54% looks like it right now. Yeah. Uh, in 538's averages. So a significant lead at this point. What could a potential time like? First of all, let me ask this Is there any world in which this is all wrapped up by November of 2024?
1: I think it is unlikely. There is certainly a world in which it could happen. There are definitely cases that have been have moved from arraignment to final judgment in under a year, that's entirely possible. The Manhattan case, for example, of course, a state case, not a federal case, has a trial date of March of 2024. Now, I suppose that could move. But my sense is that they're going to really try to make that date stick. Um, and so that's going to be, you know, in about an 11-month window between the arraignment and the actual trial. Um, I think if Cannon wanted to follow a similar timeline where we were, you know, in May or June of 2024, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's I'm well into the election year, of course, but it's before the November election. I think it's entirely within Within her power to do that. Um, there are a couple of reasons though I think that's really unlikely. One is any case like this that involves significant amounts of classified information presents enormous complexities because you need to both give the defendant an, a sense of what's in the documents. Now here, right, these were, Trump obviously had these documents, but he and his team need to be able to assess exactly what the documents on which the charges are based are. Um, and yet, the information contained in the documents needs to be safeguarded, typically. Um, so, and also, the jury needs to be able to. You know, there needs to be a way to give the jury a sense. And sometimes that involves showing the jurors, but not releasing to the public. There are just various measures that can be taken that you know are part of the procedures that a statute called the Classified Information Procedures Act sets forth. But the point is, as this description probably conveys, this is pretty time-consuming to figure out how to devise the procedures with respect to each document and then actually execute all of it. So, yes, under any ordinary circumstances, I think this is probably like a two-year process we're talking about. And of course, that means trial after the 2024 election. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it'll really turn on how much Cannon, you know, is convinced by the special counsel's office, if they argue, as ex- expect they will, that this is urgent, that this has to move swiftly so that the American people can go to the polls in November of 2024, even if not like primary voters, but certainly in the general election, if, in fa- if he's the nominee, you know, the but- this having run its course, with the sense of whether he's been convicted or not, he could still win even if convicted. It doesn't preclude that, but that, but that's a political argument. So, you know, it'll be an interesting and complicated one to make in a court, but one I would expect them to try to make in some fashion.
0: Right. So, and Donald Trump during all of this is either hoping, perhaps, that the trial runs its course and he is acquitted of all charges before November 2024, or that he certainly doesn't want to be convicted before 2024. So he could either work really hard to speed it up and try yeah. to get an acquittal and yeah. maybe we can talk about some of the angles that his defense can take or he can try to make it take a really yeah. long time. Is it clear which yeah. one he's, you know, I, I trying to do? I think both are
1: in theory uh, you know conceivable. My strong sense is that it's going to be the latter that he's going to try to slow walk this in part because, you know, this is only Trump's second criminal arraignment, but he has been a litigant in countless civil suits typically as a defendant and it's kind of his trademark to just sort of run out the clock, slow walk things as happened. His administration used this tactic to great effect when, you know, being investigated by Congress and the Manhattan DA at an earlier stage of the proceedings that did ultimately result in charges um, and countless other investigative bodies sort of stall and delay is kind of a Trump go-to in litigation. And so for that reason, I think it's likely here. But I also think that if he manages to drag things out, does, you know, secure the Republican nomination and then wins... You know, if the case is still pending, he'll have he'll install a new attorney general and presumably, you know, make this go away, right? He could or he could have the attorney general fire the special counsel, maybe – the special counsel could raise a constitutional could, – could, maybe the special counsel could raise an objection to that. He presumably thinks he has the constitutional power to do it, and he probably does. Um, even the statute, I think, gives him some wiggle room. He could assert that there had been some misconduct. He's already said that. Um, so I think he could easily make this go away if he wanted to, if, he, if the case is still pending and he's the president or once he's inaugurated, not just elected. Um, or if somehow he is convicted at some point along the way but manages to win anyway – I presume he tried to pardon himself and you know there's a really big open legal question about whether self pardon is a thing you can do. No one's ever tried Um, but I certainly don't think that would stop him. So I think and I guess I think that you know if he doesn't secure the nomination there's already talk among the rest of the kind of primary field about who would pardon him if they won and so you know if he drags things out. So even if he is convicted, it happens as late as possible such that he can be swiftly pardoned by whoever the next Republican president is. That too seems like a better outcome if you're Donald Trump than, you know, rolling the dice and maybe ending up convicted and and doing a significant stretch of time in prison because there's a lot of potential time attached to these charges.
0: Yeah, we've heard from some of his rivals in the Republican primary very approaches that they're taking to these charges, which is, you know, of course, on one hand, you have Chris Christie, who's already said that he's going all in against the president, who's been really critical. But then you have someone like Nikki Haley who initially called it prosecutorial overreach. Then she said, you know, if this is in fact true, this is very serious. He's putting our military men and women Mm -hmm. in risk, in danger. But then today, you know, she said that yesterday on Fox News, but then today she said she would consider a pardon. So we're kind of seeing... Uh, some waffling, I guess, maybe trying to get a sense of where the Republican primary electorate is at. I mean, from the polling that we have so far, we know that they believe that it's politically motivated. And given that this is a Republican primary, those are the people that you have to kind of bring along with you when you're trying to message on all of this. So, okay, Let's take the view that Trump is trying to make this take as long as possible. What kinds of mechanisms can he use to make that happen?
1: Well, I think he's likely to try to file a bunch of different motions to suppress parts of the evidence so he may again challenge, you know, so the 11th Circuit reversed the canon ruling that you described earlier on. And that was this, you know, very, very suspect in my view and in most, I think, legal commentators view uh, ruling that DOJ couldn't even access the information that it had obtained and that um, a special master had to review all the documents in the 11th circuit, which was composed, if I recall correctly, of three Republican appointees, two of them Trump appointees, and one, I think, a George H.W. Bush appointee. But either way, three conservative Republican judges re- really rebuked her in reversing that order. But nevertheless, you could imagine a set of arguments that his attorneys could make that suggest that this search was unlawful and the documents that were you know, secured as a result of that search should be suppressed. I don't. We don't know actually exactly where each of the 31 documents that are the basis of these Espionage Act charges came from. I suspect they were Carefully selected. So maybe some of them came from that search, some of them they received in response to the subpoena. So even if, I can't imagine it, but if in some universe the argument to suppress those documents was successful, you would still have other documents remaining that you could base charges on. I think they will probably try to file a motion to suppress the evidence that was provided by Trump's attorney. So attorney number one in the charging document in the indictment, but it's pretty clearly Evan Corcoran, who is um, a top Trump lawyer, um, who ended up testifying after a district court judge in D.C. decided that attorney-client privilege did not protect his conversations with Trump because of something called the crime fraud exception, right? You don't get to protect your conversations with your attorney if the conversations are about furthering or covering up a crime. and. But that wasn't this district court judge Cannon. It was a different judge. So maybe in front of Cannon, they say that judge got it wrong, and these none of the information provided by Corcoran should be ever shown to the jury. And so you try to get so so. Those are some of the arguments as to specific categories of evidence that I presume his lawyers will seek to have excluded. You know, I think then you also have some sort of bigger arguments that I presume they will make, and they've alluded to in the kind of public. You know discourse, but not really in court, um, which is one the argument that Trump has alluded to many times, and actually that even his spokeswoman, who was talking outside of the courthouse uh, earlier, sort of suggested, which is that you know because Trump has as pre- had as president the power to declassify documents, he had either a standing declassification order under which everything that left the premises was automatically declassified, which I think doesn't actually totally answer the Espionage Act issue because the documents can still be national defense information even if even not if classified. Declassified. yeah. But I think they'll try to maybe make that argument, and then there's an argument that um, they did make in in the earlier stage of these proceedings, and that also a bunch of kind of Trump allies and surrogates have been making, which is that under a statute called the Presidential Records Act, which is this you know post Watergate 1978 statute that makes clear that documents produced in the White House are you know the public's property. That after an administration ends, those things go to the National Archives, you know for posterity, right? Like we have to have the history of our you know, highest offices of government. But there is an exception for personal records, right? So if the president gets a birthday card from his grandkid, that doesn't have to go to the archives, he can keep a personal record. And they seem to be positing some just kind of boundless conception of personal records such that the president could deem anything a personal record and thus take it outside of the coverage of the Presidential Records Act, which again, I also don't think answers the Espionage Act question. Um, but these are just variations i think on on the kind of basic legal thesis that the laws and the rules just don't apply to the president in any meaningful way the president you know it can sort of do whatever he wants um you know packaged somewhat differently so those are that's the range of arguments that i envision that they will bring and you know you could bring them over the course of a lot of months and that's one of the potential delaying tactics
0: today's podcast is brought to you by shopify ready to make the smartest choice for your business Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Did you know? Shopify powers 10% of all e commerce in the US and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklyn. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries. since the last time we talked this indictment was made public we had a conversation after we learned that the president the former president was being indicted but we hadn't gone through all of the details there's a lot in there. And I'll say I actually listened to the audio version. It's on YouTube. I listened to it while I was cleaning my apartment on Saturday. So um, I didn't actually read all 49 pages, but I listened to them I have both
1: read and listened, actually. And it's actually,
0: you know, it's written in such a way that it actually makes relatively easy listening because the dialogue is sort of recounted in a way that sounds like natural conversation. And, you know, Jack Smith and his team are sort of telling a story. In all of that, You know, so I think the pictures of documents spilling out, the pictures in a -a Mar-a-Lago bathroom, those probably caught folks' attention. From a legal perspective, what's the most dramatic or significant detail in that charging document?
1: I think that there there is one exchange that is recounted verbatim um, between Trump and some individuals who are working on a former staff member's memoir, in which Trump is basically, you know... I think it's Mark Meadow's memoir, I think everybody surmises, although the document doesn't name Meadow, and he's basically responding to public critiques um about, you know, his at least as sort of reported, his late in his term, um kind of Consideration of or efforts to actually bomb a third country, right? So to launch a military attack, and he says he's he's sort of defending himself to the to these you know third parties, and he's pulling out he pulls out a classified document that he says essentially supports his version of the facts contra the version told by this other party. Um, the facts don't are, aren't, aren't that important. What's important is this is a highly classified document. He pulls it out and shows it to individuals who didn't have security clearances, didn't have any need to access that information. It's solely being offered to shore up. Trump's defense of his own, essentially, record in office. Um, And he says, while showing the document, you know, isn't that amazing? And then he says, I could have declassified it. I had the power as a president. But basically, he says, I didn't. And so there you have Trump acknowledging that he's got, he's unlawfully retained this document, and seeming to acknowledge that despite, you know, having had the power to declassify the document, he in fact had not exercised it. So, you know, Everything in that conversation, as alleged in the indictment, really, really sort of powerfully illustrates that, Trump had documents he had no lawful right to retain, that he knew it, that he knew it was unlawful, and that he knew they remained classified and and knew he had no right to show them to these individuals who had also no right to see them. And there are other exchanges involving his lawyer, Corcoran, um, and involving a representative of his political action committee to whom he also shows a document and sort of makes a similar, less explicit acknowledgement of the impropriety by basically telling this representative not to stand too close to the map is what it was. Um, So those, to my mind, are the sort of um, from the document sort of retention perspective those are kind of the most significant pieces of evidence and then with respect to you know obstructing justice, withholding documents, so that you have charges one through 31 are all these retention charges, Mm -hmm. and then you have sort of a handful of other withholding or concealing, making false statements, conspiring to obstruct justice, that kind of category of charges. And there, too, the story of the conversations with the lawyer, Corcoran, that basically say, you know, can we ignore the subpoena or say we don't have documents? And then can you maybe pluck out a document if it's really bad once some documents were located um, that I think are quite serious with respect to the kind of latter category of charges? So what's Trump's strongest defense? You know, this is a really tight document, legally, narratively, everything. Uh, I mean, I I suppose he can try to sort of whittle away the edges of it in terms of throwing out some try to categories get of documents excluded from the
0: actual case by saying it was either you know collected in an improper way yeah. that it violates attorney-client, like some of the things that we've already yeah. talked yeah. about. You know, one. I was reading playbook this morning. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not that kind of Politico person. <laughs> okay, I, w- I, I haven't read it this morning. So, yeah. I did this morning just because so much is happening in the world. Um, and while I was drinking my coffee in bed, I was like, okay, I got it. You know, I need this to begin to organize all of the day's events in my brain. And they talked to a former Trump attorney, Timothy Parlatore, mm-hmm. who left, left the in May, team right? recently, yeah. about you know what's Trump's defense? And the list was, there's was five things he said, pursue aggressive discovery. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the position he took was the prosecution's argument is always the strongest the day they reveal the indictment, because it's yep. only the information yeah. that they want the public yep. to see and nothing else. Yep. And so in the process, Trump's team will try to get other information that might try to put what seems now like black and white into some gray (laughs) area and essentially make the team that was investigating him look bad pro potential prosecutorial misconduct uh, was number two. Attack the search warrant, which is one you already mentioned. Get the lawyer's notes excluded. You also mentioned that, saying that it att- that it violates attorney-client privilege. And then five was undermine the process that produced the indictment. So something that he's been doing all along, saying this is a witch hunt, that mm-hmm. witch hunt that this is improper. That you know it's Biden's DOJ, et cetera, et cetera. In all of that, is there something that sticks out as? a legal scholar, and expert in all of this, that you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trump, Trump has a chance here.
1: Not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that last item on the list that this is a witch hunt, this is a political persecution, um, that's just political rhetoric. I mean, I, you know, I, they're actually, I'm not, you know, what was in the minds of individual, pro- and I guess that's both the fifth and the second of the, or the whatever, yeah, prosecutorial misconduct was the second, um, you know, that somehow there was, malice toward Trump that could be revealed somehow. Um, I mean, I'm just not sure that does that is not typically you know, a complete defense to the retention of documents or the obstruction of justice or any of the other charges that mm-hmm. are here. Um, so that seems to me to try to, you know, create a mood politically like that's campaign rhetoric. But I'm not quite sure even what the kind of contours of the legal argument are. I mean, I, I imagine with both of these, what Trump has in mind is, you know, he ha- was fixed, has been long fixated on, you know, these text messages from FBI agents during the sort of early days of the, I think this is even pre the 2016 election, Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, right? So he's very oh fixated on them. So here's what yeah. I imagine is going through the minds of his team. Let's just like try to get everything we can from everybody on this team. And maybe, you know, you find something where somebody seems to reveal some bias against Trump. I still don't quite see how that gets the charges thrown out. I'm just not, That's there's a real leap and there's not really precedent for that. Now, malicious, m- malicious prosecution is a, you know a real concept and there are cases about it but you know an aside in a text message even if such a thing were to be found which I don't know I kind of think Jack Smith probably has his team very buttoned up and and especially given the history here I doubt there are going to be messages of that nature um, but even if so that's very very far short of establishing a malicious prosecution which I think is what he's sort of you know what, what this stuff seems to be gesturing toward but it's it's like just facially insufficient if that's sort of all they've got. But
0: of course, Trump you know, is going to be, try- assuming this makes it to trial, yeah. when this makes it to trial, he will be tried in front of a jury of his peers. So there's the law as it's written, and there's also the perception of the 12 jurors who mm. ultimately end up deciding whether or not he's guilty. And it seems like that might be these kinds of arguments might be more geared towards a jury than just towards the letter of the law. What are the complications going to be in terms of impaneling a jury? I think it'll be 16 people, 12 who will actually sit for alternatives. alternatives, And what kind of. Arguments might they make to appeal to the people sitting there that you may not be thinking of as like okay this is how the law works et cetera
1: yeah no I think that's you're you're right to draw the distinction so so my you know assessment of the you know legal theories that you just offered is that you know it's very unlikely to me at this stage at least that a judge would you know throw out the case in its entirety or significant you know suppress significant parts of the evidence based on any of these theories but you're right assuming this does go to a jury you know arguing that that this is an unfair prosecution, that other, you know, political figures have engaged in misconduct, have not seen criminal charges that he has. I think it's right that, you know, I suppose it's possible the prosecutors could object to arguments like that, but, but that a judge would probably let his team make those kinds of arguments to a jury. And so the jury pool, I think, does matter a lot. And I do think that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of head scratching about why this case is brought in Florida and not in D.C., as a lot of people you know, anticipated or, or, or predicted, um, and you know one. I think that you know venue is just this legal concept that you're supposed to charge where the misconduct occurred, and most of this did occur in Mar-a-Lago, not exclusively. And there's maybe some legal ambiguity around the kind of taking of the documents, part of these alleged you know events, because you know. He actually leaves town before noon on January 20th. He actually is still the president. Um, It just muddies the water a little bit. Um, The retention is much more clear, and that's mostly in Florida.
0: And also, he isn't charged for the retention of any of the documents that he initially returned Returned. to the archives, right? I
1: think that's right. I don't know that we know enough about the identity of each of the documents, but my sense is that, because within that first year of requests and then demands from the archives, he eventually does turn over a lot of documents. um, And then there's the subpoena, and then there's the search warrant. Um, But I think it's right, These these 31 are not from that initial tranche that was voluntarily surrendered. And I think that's really important in terms of making clear that if Trump had just cooperated, I don't think we're seeing these proceedings at all. So all of this, we are seeing the federal charges and the you know likely trial bearing down on us. Although who knows when? Not because he took the documents, or not exclusively because he took the documents, but because of everything else he did vis-a-vis the documents. And that's just a hugely important distinction between like a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden or a Mike Pence who you know had some classified documents and cooperated fully. The moment that came to their attention, and in some cases, like with Biden, it was his own team that even identified and volunteered the existence of the documents. And I think that's true about Pence as well, actually. So it's you know, so so there's sort of a world difference. But back to the jury pool, yeah, yeah it's um. Yeah, I mean, I think that bringing this case in Florida, like, that's likely a more Trump-sympathetic terrain than, like, D.C. or Manhattan, where the state charges are going to be tried next March. Um, and so, you know, I think that maybe tactically the special counsel made this choice not just because of the venue issue, but also because it's going to be very difficult if you can secure a conviction under these circumstances with Judge Cannon and with a jury pool that's going to be a pretty Trump-sympathetic jury pool to, you know, accuse the proceedings, uh, accuse the prosecutors of misconduct, sort of suggest you know, rigged proceedings witch hunt. You've essentially sort of taken on a very a much more difficult, you know, place, you know, and setting to try this case than other available options. And so a win under these conditions, I, you know, should in theory be kind of airtight, but probably Trump could 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 accuse, you know, the prosecutors of a witch hunt no matter what. But I imagine that that those things sort of came into play. And I think that yes, this is it's possibly a jury pool that those kind of politically inflected arguments might resonate with.
0: Yeah. I mean, how do you think about the possibility of a hung jury in a case like this, right? I mean, how do you find people, 12 people, 16 people who don't have an An opinion opinion, about Trump or some, even if it's not... Right. A lot of Americans don't have super strong political views in the way that you might see them portrayed by party activists or lawmakers or, you know, partisans on TV. But they'll have a general sense of like, I don't really trust the government. This seems shady. Like they're probably going after Trump or like, yeah, this guy seems corrupt. Like I totally believe, you know, I think almost anyone would come into this with, if not some sort of dedicated position, a sense of which side they might be on.
1: I mean, look, you guys poll and sort of know what Americans say about Trump way better than I do. I mean, I guess I, I take a little comfort from the Eugene Carroll proceedings, which is that like jurors really did say that like not everybody falls, not everyone's a new is reading political playbook like when they wake up in bed in the morning. Just drag me. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, I actually don't. Again, I think it's possible that you might have people who don't have super strong priors in uh, about Trump. A lot of people do, but also about you know even like a lot of Trump supporters may you know. When faced with the kind of gravity of these charges, actually sort of say, like, it does seem like the elements have been satisfied. And so, so, so anyway, I'll just say you had the the Manhattan jury that was impaneled in the civil, you know, rape and defamation case brought by Eugene Carroll. You had a mix of people, most of whom said they didn't consume a lot of news, and, you know, where this was a case that was really on the law, really very strong. And they found Trump liable in, like, you know, a matter of hours, incredibly fast verdict. Now, again, that's Manhattan jury back to the earlier point, that may not be predictive of the substantive outcome in Florida. But and I think did. Draw
0: a distinction too, right? They said he was liable for defamation right. yeah. and abuse, but not, not rape. Rape. That's
1: right. Yeah, no, that's right. And so you had this group of, I think, relatively ideologically diverse individuals who coalesced around, and you're totally right. It's an it was an interestingly split verdict where they did find, you know, that he was responsible, but they did, you know, find not as to the rape, which is a little bit of a puzzling verdict to sort of get your head around. But like, you know, maybe they were just really applying the law and sort of assessing the facts as they had been presented them and said, yes, the elements are satisfied with two, but not all of the claims that have been brought. Um, So I mean, maybe this is like sunny optimist me, but I I think there's a decent chance that you get a fair minded group, you know, kind of anywhere and let the prosecutors present these facts and let the chips fall where they may.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do because I think one of the arguments that's going to be made in public throughout this entire process has already been made. It will be made. It will be part of the atmosphere in which this jury, assuming this goes to trial, is deciding this case. It's like, look at Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. you know, she was running for president. She used a private email server. She deleted, you know, there were 60,000 emails. She deleted 30,000. It came to be the case that there were there was classified documents and even top secret information within those classified documents that were on her private server. Ultimately, she wasn't charged. How could this be? You know, like, why would Trump be charged in this case, but not Clinton? And, of course, folks will say, Clinton fully complied, et cetera, et cetera. Trump will respond. Yeah, but what about all those deleted emails, et cetera, et cetera? So, I mean, for people who just want to get to the bottom of why wasn't Clinton charged? Why is Trump being charged in this case? What's the sort of clearest explanation?
1: I mean, I think that Comey, when he announced that he wasn't charging Clinton, basically made clear that there just wasn't evidence of intent right like that she had intentionally retained classified information taken retained intentionally deleted material in order to conceal some unlawful activity like the law cares a great deal about your state of mind and intent in particular and the indictment you know the facts alleged in the indictment here in the trump case make crystal clear that again these are allegations but the allegations are that trump absolutely knew he had taken the documents he had taken them unlawfully he concealed them um all of this was done deliberately and intentionally. And you just didn't have evidence of that in the Clinton case. And from a legal perspective, that is just a world of difference.
0: Going back to the jury for a second, how this all plays out is going to have a lot to do with how Judge Eileen Cannon wants it to play out. Yeah. You know, she'll have she'll be able to make a lot of small decisions surrounding juror selection, timeline, things like that. Can you just lay out how those could all come together to shape the next year plus of this. Yeah.
1: Look, in theory, she has the power to do everything up to and including actually just throw the case out, right? Like she could end it. Um, She could say, now the jury's supposed to decide the facts, but she could say the law doesn't allow, you know, even if everything is exactly as you prosecutors say, there actually isn't uh, a crime here or a set of crimes here. And she could actually dismiss the whole case not very likely, having read this indictment and having read a lot of indictments. But nothing, you know, so, so that just gives a sense of how much kind of power she has over these proceedings. But yes, I mean, she could set a status date in a week, she could set a status date in six months, you know what I mean? She could start things off really quickly or really slowly, and six months is probably far. And, you know, and, and we should say, I don't think we've, we've mentioned this, this court in Southern Florida, actually has a reputation as one of these courts that sometimes people call like a rocket docket court. They actually do move things relatively quickly compared to rocket other- Rocket
0: <laughs> docket court. There's a so name for everything. I
1: know. So there's a few of them, but this, anyway, it's it's known to move things along expeditiously. Um, so there actually is a statute that in theory is supposed to like require things to go to trial within 70 days, like 70 business days. So it's like two months. Never, never happened. Um And mainly it's designed to protect defendants from having just to kind of, suspend their life and, you know, be in limbo while they wait for the a case brought against them to be brought to trial. So if the defendant, who's protected by both the Constitution and this statute, um, is the one trying to drag things out, like, uh, the judge might be kind of willing to go along. So she could rule quickly, she could sit on motions for weeks or months. Um, and, you know, at some point, she will set a target trial date, presumably. And that could be, again, that could be next spring, it could be you know, a year and a half from now, we just and it could be after the election. We just we just don't know. So those are I think we will get a sense of our disposition about all of this as soon as we actually see her on the bench beginning to make some rulings.
0: Yeah, I think we've laid out some of it, but what's the range of outcomes here from basically throwing the case out all the way to prison?
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if he is convicted on, you know, 37, there's 30, 37 counts here. Um, he is fundraising with a claim that he could be facing 400 years, right? So he likes to sort of in everything, including, like, the possible prison terms. And maybe that's right if you actually stack. So I think these Espionage Act charges have a max of 10 years. But even if you were convicted on all of them, very likely they would run concurrently at the same time as opposed to consecutively, one after another. Um but if you add in everything, the kind of legal analysis that I've read that seems sound is that we could be talking like 25 to 30 years, uh, like on the outside, like at the you know the, the high end, um, which is a lot of prison time when you're 76 years old um, or any age. Um, so that, at least in theory, is possible. But of course, that wouldn't be the final word. There would, I'm sure, be an appeal. And very likely he wouldn't have to start serving a sentence until after the appellate court had ruled and potentially a Supreme Court ruling. So, you know, even if it happens fast and there's a conviction fast, you know, it's a lot of ifs. But even if that did happen, that wouldn't be the end of the legal proceedings either. So we're looking at a pretty long haul kind of even under the most accelerated version of these events.
0: Trump is, of course, going to be dealing with this case while he's running for president. What does the law say about how you know, a convicted felon can go about running for president or being president. And of course, he's not a convicted felon, but if that yeah, were if that to be happen. the case.
1: Yeah. So the Constitution sets forth a few requirements to be president, right? You have to be a natural born citizen, you have to be 35, you have to be, have been a certain number of years a resident, um, and that's it. Like there's nothing about no criminal convictions or even like a free person not subject to, you know, a prison term. So, you know, it is absolutely possible within the, you know, Confines of the Constitution and federal statutes to run for president while under indictment, even potentially while convicted, um, even potentially while incarcerated. The challenges are logistical, right? Not legal or constitutional. So, um, look, I have to imagine that he, if it somehow came to pass, he was convicted and actually started serving a sentence, so he was incarcerated between now and November of 2024. Which I absolutely do not expect to happen. But just since we're talking about possibilities, um, I imagine that. The judge, if it's Judge Cannon still, and I presume it will be, Um, there's been some talk of trying to get her to recuse. I I don't know. It doesn't we haven't heard any indication to that effect, but at least that's a thing that can happen. Um, But. I would imagine she would actually suspend his service of the sentence and let him finish the presidential campaign, not require him to actually be in in prison. Judges have a lot of discretion and control over when somebody has to say start to serve a sentence, and they'll exercise discretion if you have a pregnant defendant, let them give birth and then begin serving a sentence. You know, so I don't know. This is not so dissimilar. So I think that the judge could actually say, and then, you know, once he's in, he could Try to pardon himself, and so the whole thing goes away again. If if he if he were to win, if not, I presume he would start serving after uh, the loss. Um, so that, but yeah, I don't imagine a scenario in which he is literally running a presidential campaign from a federal prison. I don't yeah. think that's likely to happen.
0: As we start to wrap up here, sort of putting this in context of why this is making history: it's a former president mm-hmm. being federally charged and a leading presidential candidate also being charged there's this concern that in democracies you have to be very sensitive about prosecuting your political opponents of course at the end of the day this is joe biden's department of justice Mm -hmm. and so and republicans are claiming that this is prosecutorial overreach that this is not an impartial department of justice we see republican voters Basically, views of the FBI have even switched. So Democrats used to be more skeptical of the FBI. Now Republicans are more skeptical of the FBI. And so I think we're going to hear from Republicans, you know, this is stuff of dictatorship. We heard from Trump's attorney today. This is stuff of dictatorships. This is stuff of banana republics and commentary along the lines of, you know, be careful the next time a Republican is president, you know, Democrats are going to find themselves prosecuted in similar cases. So how can we look at all of this and be sure that this is an impartial judicial process playing out. This is the way that things are supposed to work. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's an important question from the perspective of kind of, you know, the norms of a constitutional democracy and the rule of law. Um, so I think that just constantly sort of checking in to be sure that we are not concerned about partisanship playing any kind of role in this prosecution is actually really important. I mean, the things that, that I think are all, are important sort of countervailing values to this, you know, norm that we ordinarily do not prosecute political opponents in this country. And that, of course, is right. Um, But there are lots of examples of high-ranking political officials who have been prosecuted, sometimes by prosecutors of their own party and sometimes of the other party, where they've engaged in egregious misconduct. So, you know, I'm from Illinois. Like most of our former governors have been prosecuted and sentenced um, for, you know, various kinds of offenses. So we have prosecuted senators Members of Congress, federal judges, governors, mayors, high-ranking military officials, cabinet secretaries, two vice presidents, right? So both Aaron Burr and Spiro Agnew, although Agnew kind of resigned at the very moment that he the, the charge happened. So you can sort of quibble about whether he was charged as vice president, but he was charged as basically functionally as vice president. So it's actually like we have seen this, and it has not I don't think caused like a cycle of retribution and payback. Rather I think it's actually been really important to preservation of rule of law, values, because I think while it is dangerous to be in the habit of prosecuting, you know, political adversaries adversaries or opponents, it's also really important that the rule of law demands sort of the application of the same set of rules and norms to high-ranking officials as apply to everyone else. And we have seen lots of other people who aren't former presidents who engaged you know, in far less egregious acts of document retention and obstruction than those alleged in this indictment um, be prosecuted and sometimes convicted. Um, and sometimes, you know, often will be allowed to plead to a, a lesser offense and sometimes not even serve any prisoners would have a Sandy Berger, right, a former national security advisor to President Clinton, who took classified documents and ended up pleading to some lesser charge and, you know, paying a fine and serving some community service. Um, so I think that being mindful of, of of the kind of positions that high-ranking officials occupy and candidates, as you say, like he's not just a former president, he's a candidate. And so I think it is appropriate to be kind of mindful of that in structuring these proceedings. And of course, every accommodation has been made. He's He, is, he will have Secret Service protection for life, whatever happens with the 2024 election. And so that means that the details of these court appearances look really different for Donald Trump than they do for anyone else. And all of that is actually really important. Um, but I don't. I think it takes that argument way too far to suggest that all of that, the, the mm-hmm. fact that he gets some, he is entitled to some, some you know, unique kind of treatment because of his uh, office, um, that that insulates him in an absolute way from potential legal liability and even criminal liability if he actually engaged in the conduct alleged in this indictment.
0: Yeah, and speaking of those lesser charges, is there any expectation that a plea deal would be offered or that it would be taken? I mean, I kind of almost feel stupid yeah. asking this no, question I think because I kind of assume that yeah, Donald Trump it, would not want to admit guilt yeah. under any circumstance. But yeah. it, I might since we're since we're covering this entire yeah. case, literally A to Z, yes. you're truly like a constitutional open book. I, is there any law that you're not familiar with?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> <Or> lots, any... <laughs> tons, tons.
0: Um l- since we're covering it all, I mean is, I guess it's worth asking. Yeah,
1: about. I mean, I I think that ordinarily there would be a plea offer from the special counsel's team, and. I also think that you're right, the chances of Trump taking one are less than zero. But I think that they'll be, I think that they would be offered. And, you know, there like even is, there are mechanisms where you can take a plea, it's called an Alfred plea, and not actually admit guilt. So maybe something like that might be offered. But regardless, it will look like, and I think for that reason, Trump would be totally unwilling to do it. Like there's an admission of guilt there, and that's not something that. Trump really, I think, seems capable of doing right, admitting wrongdoing in in any fashion, and so I find, yeah, I th- would say less than zero. But yeah, I I would expect that that an offer would be made because I think that this team is trying to do things exactly by the books and under any ordinary circumstances, like a plea would a plea offer would be made.
0: All right. Well, I've run out of the questions that I have to ask, and you have you have certainly satisfied my curiosity on many different aspects of this case. But I just want to ask you before you go what questions do you have? Like, what are you curious about either from like a nerdy legal perspective mm-hmm. or from a, how is our country going to process this perspective as things play out?
1: Yeah. I mean, the his legal representation is a fascinating question to me. I mean, it is, you know, it is a very, very like high status job typically to be a former president's lawyer. And that's, you know, lawyers like high status stuff. It's like very high profile. Norm- you can opt that hourly rate, right? <laughs> exactly. And so normally I a mat you know normally there would be just a ton of people who would be really interested in taking on this representation. And it is striking to me that it seems as though he's having a hard time finding legal representation. So I'm going to be really curious who he manages to secure as a legal team. And uh, and I think that, that you know, that understandably, I think it's increasingly difficult, in particular with, you know, some of the conduct vis-a-vis his attorneys that's on display in the indictment. Um, it might be kind of hard to convince people, as attractive as it is, uh, to come on board because you're actually, like, taking on some legal risk yourself, at least based on, again, the allegations in the indictment. Um, I will also see how they make versions of this Presidential Records Act or this inherent declassification authority kind of arguments. I mean, sort of fundamentally and deeply, I think that Donald Trump actually doesn't think that the laws apply to the president. And that's, you know, Richard Nixon didn't either, right? The president does it. It's not against the law. And so I actually think that you're sort of seeing that's actually the kind of the the core of some of these arguments, even though, again, they take on slightly different form. So how those arguments actually get made in court as opposed to in the political sphere um, and how they're received by Judge Cannon and just the kind of the sort of dialogue between the arguments made politically and what happens in court and whether the special counsel's office brings things that the, that Trump says on the campaign trail into court
0: where mm. they think
1: it would be helpful to their case if he sort of says, yeah, I did this, but I had the right, the right as a president. Well, the admission, yeah, I did this, is... Not helpful to his legal defense. Um, so, so I'm going to be interested in the kind of you know interplay between those two.
0: Which so his lawyers are going to be like, okay, here's some things that you should not say yeah. on the campaign trail, yeah. and then
1: he'll definitely say those things. And so, what the court is going to do with him, I think, is the open question.
0: Okay. All right. <laughs> well, we will see. Um, But for now, thank you so much. I really appreciate
1: you joining today. Sure, thanks for having me.
0: Kate Shaw is a law professor at the Cardozo School of Law. She's also an ABC News legal contributor and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the control room and also on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at at podcastsat538.com. You can also, of course, tweet us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.